The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. Before we start, I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers, and I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, nor will I never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So the numbers are in, and I'm pretty jacked up. I mean, on internet radio, listenership is usually described by how many listeners you have in a month. And right now, when looking at the numbers for just the first five days of the show, we're on track to have approximately 7,000 listeners in our first 30 days. So from zero, and and I, I mean zero, like no one even knowing about the show until a few days before the pilot episode, to 7,000 people listening in, that's pretty great. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty stoked about that, and um, it's really awesome. So, our our listeners are not only in the United States, but in 17 other countries around the world, including places like Qatar, Estonia, and the United Arab Emirates. So it's totally awesome. It shows that there that there's an interest in cybersecurity for many different reasons, and people want to hear from the amazing guests we have on the show. So I'm super proud of the global reach, especially, and, and thank you so much for tuning in. So to keep you more informed about the show, the guests we have, and the events that we plan on attending, please make sure you follow us on social media. Uh, We started our social media presence last week. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TF7 Radio, or visit our website at www.taskforce7radio.com. You can also find me, George Redis, your humble host, on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Google+. At George Redis, and my personal website, georgeredis.com, is currently under construction and should be running very soon. So, President Trump has officially declared October of 2017 National Cybersecurity Awareness Month in the United States. This is awesome. President Trump released a short statement stating that, I quote, All Americans are affected by threats to our nation's cybersecurity. In recent years, Bad actors in cyberspace have launched attacks on a cross-section of America. Businesses, both small and large, state and local governments, schoolhouses, hospitals, and infrastructure critical to public safety and national security. My administration is committed to protecting Americans against these threats. During Cybersecurity Awareness Month, we reflect on our nation's increasing reliance on technology and the internet and raise awareness about the importance of cybersecurity. Keeping our nation secure in the face of cyber threats is our shared responsibility. Our agility and resilience in responding to these threats will improve as our collective awareness about their nature improves as well. So the president goes on to say on May 11, 2017, that he signed an executive order entitled Strengthening the Cybersecurity of Federal Networks and Critical Infrastructure to counter the serious and increasing cyber threats facing our nation. He continues, 
My executive order will help secure federal networks that operate on behalf of American citizens, improve coordination with industry to protect their critical infrastructure that maintains our American way of life, strengthen our cyber deterrence posture, and promote the development of a highly capable and sustainable cybersecurity workforce. Now, this is really important stuff, considering the fact that we're facing one of the most critical talent crises in the world, and basically has ever seen in any job market. And that's worldwide. That's global. And last night I checked, there were about 300,000 open cybersecurity positions in the United States because there was no one with the talent to fill them. And there was about 1 million jobs open worldwide for the same reason. And that number is expected to be 1.8 million by the end of 2017, according to most experts who monitor the talent space. So the president continues on. His statement says, together, these efforts will help ensure that our country remains secure and safe from 21st century cyber threats while keeping the Internet viable, valuable, and safe for future generations. Through my administration's cybersecurity policies, America and the world will continue on a path toward a more open and secure Internet, one that fosters innovation and spurs economic prosperity. We will accomplish this while respecting privacy and preventing cyber disruption, fraud, and theft. The statement is very well balanced. This month in particular, I encourage public and private sector organizations to work together to provide Americans with the information, guidance, and tools they need to improve their safety and security in the digital age. I also encourage every American to learn more about how to protect themselves and their businesses through the Department of Homeland Security's Stop, Think, Connect. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Stop, Think, Connect, the Stop, Think, Connect campaign is a national public awareness campaign aimed at increasing the understanding of cyber threats and empowering the American public to be safer and more secure online. If you go to the site, the Stop, Think, Connect campaign emphasizes that cybersecurity is a shared responsibility. I think you're going to see this theme over and over again. And then we each have to do our part to keep the Internet safe. When we all take simple steps to be safer online, it makes using the Internet a more secure experience for everyone. So I very much encourage you to check out the Stop, Think, Connect campaign on the DHS website located at www.dhs.gov slash stop, think, connect. The president concludes his statement by calling upon the people, companies, and institutions of the United States to recognize the importance of cybersecurity and to observe this month through events, training, and education to further our country's national security and resilience. In addition to the president's statement, various government entities have put out statements contributing to the National Cyber Awareness Campaign, including the Department of Homeland Security and the National Security Agency. So as it turns out, cybersecurity is really important. It's a big deal. And it is so critical to the national security of the United States that we are dedicating an entire month of events and training to educating professionals and the public on this important topic. This speaks volumes, of course, not only about the threat cybersecurity is to our national security, but also to the importance of this show. And so if I haven't made it very clear yet, one of the goals of the show is to drive positive, productive change by bringing major issues to light that result in policies being enacted that make us all safer. So as it turns out, National Security Awareness Month has no shortage of cybersecurity events in the news, unfortunately. Let's talk about some of the things that happened last month and are still being reported on today.
Apparently, I'm not the only one who thinks Congress, Congress needs to act to make our country safer. According to CNBC, Microsoft's president, Brad Smith, says Congress needs to act right away on cybersecurity. Smith spoke from the Cambridge Cyber Summit, presented by the Aspen Institute and CNBC. We all know about the tenuous discussions that technology companies have with the government over the handling of cybersecurity issues like encryption. CNBC noted that Apple spent much of 2016 battling the FBI over allowing government access to encrypted devices, things we commonly call a backdoor in this business. So Smith stated that, quote, the last thing we should do is create a backdoor. It leaves law enforcement challenges, of course, and that then gets to more complicated and sometimes nuanced discussions. But it was obvious that he was adamantly against providing the G with backdoors to encryption technology commonly used in messaging systems. So, and you'll probably be surprised by this, but I, I agree with him. Being a former law enforcement officer even, I agree with him. And I will be talking about this in depth on a future segment of the show. So to pile on, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella recently told CNBC that cybersecurity is, quote, top of mind for Microsoft as society comes to terms with regulating the dark side of technology. Over the past 15 years, the company has developed a system to view what's happening at more than 1 billion endpoints in its cloud in real time. The company uses those insights to prevent malicious code from spreading across software like Outlook and Office. So while the U.S. government's stance on encryption has improved considerably from a year ago, according to Smith, he said that he actually feels worse about the nation's cybersecurity. The nation states are creating more sophisticated and varied attacks, and cyber criminals are hacking to make money. So in all honesty, I probably feel worse rather than better, he said. It's less about a specific conversation with a specific government and more about the rising tide of attacks that we're seeing. So it's not only in the United States uh, that people are concerned about cybersecurity. According to BBC News, more than 1,000 incidents were reported to the National Cybersecurity Center in its first year of operation. And so as some edu educational stuff here for us, that the center is part of the intelligence agency GCHQ in the UK. And they said more than half the incidents that they monitored out of 1,000 posed a significant threat. The center employs about 6,000 people. They also partner with MI6 and MI5. And they, their job is to protect the UK, along with law enforcement and other intelligence agencies that they partner with. Specifically, they help defend government systems from cyber attack, and they also provide support to the UK's armed forces. So the first year of the center's work has been marked by a significant escalation in threats. In all, 1,131 attacks were reported, and 590 were classified as significant and more than 30 assessed serious enough to require a cross-government response in the UK. But NCSC head Chiron Martin warned that there could be more significant and damaging attacks in the near future. Mr. Martin described the cyber threat as large, growing, and diverse, and warned that further attacks were inevitable. He was also quoted as saying, cybersecurity is crucial to our national security and to our prosperity. Sounds familiar. He warned that, quote, further attacks will happen. 
An interesting tidbit here. A NCSC report said there were now more devices connected to the Internet than there were people in the world. And they admitted, despite the best work of their smartest people and their best efforts, they will not be able to prevent every attack. So this is important to understand as cyber intelligence personnel across the globe access the threat we face. And this is something that we're going to talk about as, as a theme. And I think Richard Clark referenced it in our last episode. You're going to get hacked. Assume you will be breached. It will happen to you. But think holistically with 360-degree optics, with a defense and depth posture in mind. It's really the cybersecurity and incident response life cycles that we're going to be judged on. We're going to have some of the top CISOs and CSOs in the country appear on the show to give their opinions on exactly how we should be doing this. So moving on. According to the hackernews.com, there's a dark web drug dealer out there named Gal Valerius. He's a 38-year-old French national, and he was arrested after he traveled to the United States for this year's, and get this, World Beard and Mustache Championships. <laughs> I don't know what you guys are thinking here, but I got to tell you, man, I never missed me some World Beard and Mustache Championships. I mean, I ranked this right up there with the Giants going to the Super Bowl. I'm in. This clown was apparently picked off at the Atlanta airport by federal authorities on complaints out of the Federal District of Miami. So authorities are claiming that Valerius uses the online moniker OxyMonster. That's right. You heard me. And he used this moniker to distribute drugs to children across the globe through an underground illegal dark web marketplace called Dream Market where he was an administrator, a senior moderator, and a vendor. So for those of you who don't know how this type of thing works, these, these underground dark market places are sort of like an eBay-type marketplace for illegal narcotics and drug paraphernalia. And apparently, he was just openly advertising and selling drugs, like you sell pancakes, including cocaine, LSD, methamphetamine, fentanyl, and oxy. So when authorities searched his computer, they found his login credentials for Dream Market and covered roughly $500,000 worth of bitcoins, the digital currency used to complete his transactions, and a PGP encryption key entitled with, guess what? Nothing other than Oxy Monster. Mr. Nice Guy. Apparently he's not a Harvard grad. So according to the Miami Herald, the suspect is now expected to be transferred from Atlanta to Miami, who will be facing a fresh conspiracy indictment that carries up to life in federal prison. I don't know what this guy's thinking. I mean, he's committing crimes so severe and so serious that if he ever sets foot on U.S. soil, he risks looking at four walls for the rest of his life in a jail cell, in a federal prison. But he says, that doesn't matter. I need to risk it all. I need to get to Austin, Texas to attend this year's World Beard and Mustache Championships because this, I can't do without. Well, if you saw a picture of this clown, you wouldn't laugh. His beard's incredible. 
He makes ZZ Top look like a bunch of wannabes, I gotta tell you. If his trip wasn't interrupted by the federal version of the Cyberpopo, he probably would have won that championship. Me personally, I can see why he risked it all. In any case, score one for the good guys. It looks like Dream Market may be no more. Thank God. It's time to take a break. We'll be back after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Ritas. There's a ton to catch up on in the news this week. Quite simply, it's chaos out there. But first, before we get started talking about all these breaches, one thing I, I want to say about me is maybe not so much in line with what I had to say last week during last episode on the ridiculous tweets from Equifax, but generally most of the time, you're going to hear from me a more empathetic voice when we talk about cybersecurity failures, or let's put it this way, a more empathetic voice than the average person, or, or maybe even the average professional at, at some times. Um, I'm in the cybersecurity business. I've been in it for a long time. I know how hard it is to run a world-class cybersecurity initiative for a major Fortune 500 company, and I know what the best professionals in the world are up against. I'm not here to Monday morning quarterback the failures of what, for the most part, are exceedingly competent professionals. 
I want to talk about the incidents in a sense that they are learning moments that we can gain knowledge from. So as we start getting through more episodes, a lot of you will probably be asking yourselves, what is this guy talking about? Why is he defending their actions, or in most cases, a lack of action? We should be hanging these people, most of you say to me, and I get a lot of that on social media. So every day I'm amazed on how cybersecurity professionals are so critical of each other when the reality is you should take caution on how you publicly criticize other CS pros because more likely than not, your turn is coming to a network near you. And just the way you decide to lay in on someone who's having a bad day in the cyber world, well, most likely we're all going to have that bad day eventually. And I think it's reasonable to say we all want to be treated fairly. So think about your bad day in the whole cybersecurity world calling for you to be drawn and quartered by the flagpole outside the main lobby of headquarters while your coworkers are invited to a lunch and learn to watch what happens to CISOs and CEOs who are in charge of an organization that is breached. I know in the technology space, the way to show how tough you are is to show your technical prowess in the boardroom and in the conference rooms with the executives and to talk in terms that no one in the room even understands. And to pound your chest with your cybersecurity acumen. Really, our opinion should be equitable and we should all try to show some humility. And I'm going to try to do that as well as we move forward and just try to keep that in mind. So well, what's worse in the media right now, in almost every article I read, I mean, I just last week, I read a Fortune magazine reporter uh, article from a reporter named Rumi Khan. And she wrote an article in Fortune.com magazine that suggested that senior executives should be criminally prosecuted for their cybersecurity failures. Amazon, Deloitte, Equifax, lock them all up. That's what she's suggesting. I have no idea what she's talking about. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me with that? How ignorant do you have to be to make such a suggestion? Here's exactly what she said. Even though Equifax executives have shown incompetence and foot dragging in protecting sensitive data, it is unlikely anyone will face criminal charges. Probably no one is surprised considering that not many corporate executives face harsh legal consequences for their mismanagement conducts. Mismanagement conducts. Therein lies the problem, she opines. Equifax executives who sold their stocks after the intrusion but before the public announcement may face insider stock trading charges, which, by the way, they should. They should be prosecuted if there is probable cause to believe they did, in fact, commit offenses. I totally agree with that. But she goes on to write that they will probably escape severe consequences for their recklessness in executing their fiduciary responsibilities, which resulted in damages to millions of customers. She says that executives may also face compensation clawbacks, but they will most likely evade criminal charges. She summarizes her opinion article by saying that fines and clawbacks with no serious legal consequences serve as just, quote-unquote, mere condemnation and not as a deterrence to inhibit recurring bad executive behavior. So, Rumi, let me ask you, what's the charge? What's the federal offense that you want to charge these executives with? 
Mismanagement? Really? How long should we lock these executives up? I mean, are we calling for solitary confinement here? Hard labor? In the case of Equifax, it seems, it would appear, that some guy in the IT department of a 10,000 person organization dropped the ball and missed a patch on a critical box. And now you want to throw the CEO in jail. How about firing the guy who didn't patch the box? I've searched everywhere. I haven't found one person yet call for the firing of that individual. I know, I know. Those of you out there are going nuts right now. What about the insider trading? The tweets referencing the Fugazi Response website. The JV team that set up the site. The site's own vulnerabilities. The timeliness of the notifications. That despicable legal disclaimer hidden in the small print on the website, which, by the way, caught the attention of the Attorney General of the State of New York, who quickly told Equifax to take the wording out, and they did. I mean, I just, it just bothers me when people who don't have any clue about cybersecurity and the mere capability of our adversaries demand incarceration for individuals. I mean, it's a serious, serious demand. We should hold people accountable with criminal prosecutions when there is probable cause to believe they committed a criminal offense. Not when they have mismanagement failures. Let's know the difference. As we move forward, I'm going to try to be fair, and I'm going to try to speak from my experience as a cybersecurity professional, but I promise you, I'm going to tell you like it is. I'm going to give it to you straight, just like I did last week. Back to what's going on in the world. According to HackerNews.com, once again, it's just another day and just another breach. I laughed when I read that. Whole Foods Market, an Amazon-owned grocery chain that was purchased for $13.7 billion in late August, has fallen victim to a breach that compromised credit cards due to some of their 500 stores in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada. Amazon announced that hackers were able to gain unauthorized access to credit card information for its customers who made purchases at certain venues like tap rooms and full table service restaurants located within some stores. The company did not disclose details about the targeted locations or the total number of customers affected by the breach, but it did mention that hackers targeted some of its point-of-sale terminals in an attempt to steal customer data, including credit details. The company also said that people who only shopped for groceries at Whole Foods were not affected and the hackers were not able to access Amazon transactions in the security breach. So what did they do? They hired a cybersecurity firm to help it investigate the credit card breach and contacted law enforcement authorities to investigate and track down the miscreants who breached their systems. So this is exactly what they said because it's pertinent to our conversation, so I want to quote them. When Whole Foods Market learned of this, the company launched an investigation, obtained the help of leading cybersecurity forensics firms, contacted law enforcement, and is taking appropriate measures to address this issue. The company is also encouraging its customers to closely monitor their credit card statements and report any unauthorized charges to the issuing bank. Whole Foods Market also added that none of the affected systems that are being investigated are in any way connected to Amazon.com systems. So this is very, very important, and I'll tell you why. I'm not sure when the breach happened or when they discovered it, 
or exactly what was exposed or exfiltrated. But Amazon took the steps of notifying the public and they called it in. They said, hey, Houston, we got a problem. Essentially, they announced they were breached. They're investigating. And all of their customers, all of them who made purchases at tap rooms and full table service restaurants in their stores should be diligent in monitoring their credit card activity and promptly reporting any suspicious activity to their respective credit card companies. Now, this differs drastically from some companies who have been compromised and choose to wait until the forensic investigation is complete. So they can make one announcement regarding the breach, announce exactly what was compromised, and tell consumers to check your mailboxes because the proverbial notification is in the mail, as in the instance of Equifax. So conversely, let's think about this. Depending on when the breach actually did occur, Amazon might be able to spare themselves the drama of being criticized by every major media station in the world, most of which, by the way, don't have a clue what it takes to run a major forensic investigation into large interconnected flat networks, as to why it took them so long to notify the public after they discovered that their systems were infiltrated by some dark, unknown, evil entity. The downside of this, of course, is that most likely, Amazon may have to make one more or several more public statements for that matter, releasing information from their forensic investigation as they acquire it. So as I know from my experience with these types of things, as the investigation continues, the scale of the breach could just get worse. Get worse and worse. And you could run the risk of doing some major damage to your brand and the reputation of your company by constantly going out and making these announcements about a security failure of which the consequences never seem to stop growing. It gives the public the impression that you just keep getting more incompetent by the day, which isn't true. You're just releasing the information as you discover it. You're trying to be responsible. So we're going to talk more about this when we talk about the Deloitte and the Equifax breaches later on. So moving on to some other stuff, according to Krebs on Security, another restaurant, Sonic Drive-In, a fast food chain with nearly 3,600 locations across 45 states, has acknowledged a breach affecting an unknown number of store payment systems. The ongoing breach may have led to a fire sale on millions of stolen credit and debit card accounts that are now being peddled in the shadowy underground cybercrime stores. So Krebs claims he first noticed evidence of the breach at an Oklahoma City-based Sonic from, and get this, sources from multiple financial institutions who noticed a recent pattern of fraudulent transactions on cards that they all previously been used at Sonic. So Krebs claims he directed several of these banking industry sources to have a look at a, at a brand new batch of some 5 million credit and debit card accounts that were first put up for sale on September 18th in a credit card theft bazaar previously featured on Krebs' blog called Joker Stash. So sure enough, he claims the two sources who agreed to purchase a handful of cards from the batch of accounts on sale at Joker's discovered they all had been recently used at Sonic locations. So the significance of this, of course, for the general public is that the exercise helps determine a common point of purchase, or CPP, which could then provide us evidence for a common point of compromise, or CPC, alerting us to a certain specific compromise of a system that was previously unknown. So Krebs then claims 
that within the hour he called Sonic, who informed him they were investigating a potential incident at some Sonic locations. They told him, our credit card processor informed us last week of unusual activity regarding credit cards used at Sonic. This was a statement the company issued to Krebs on security. They further stated that the security of our guests information is very important to Sonic. We are working to understand the nature and scope of this issue as we know how important this is to our guests. We immediately engaged third-party forensic experts in law enforcement when we heard from our processor. While law enforcement limits the information we can share, we will communicate additional information as we are able. So Christy Woodworth, the Vice President of Public Relations at Sonic, said that the investigation is still in its early stages and the company does not yet know how many of which of its stores were, were impacted by the event. So first let me say this. To the quote-unquote bank sources who are calling the news media, in this case they called Krebs on security, but it could have been anyone, calling them about suspicious patterns of fraudulent activity that they are, are, are seeing on credit cards, don't do that. Please don't do that. You're, you're seriously putting in jeopardy the investigative efforts of law enforcement personnel who are working their butts off to determine attribution, identify perpetrators, bring people to justice when at all possible. And you're hurting their efforts by prematurely making it public that the company is aware of the breach and the cops are on the hunt. And if companies are able to determine who these bank sources are, they should be unceremoniously fired. This kind of stuff is not helpful. It's certainly, I'm sure it's a violation of the company's policy. And whoever is doing this kind of stuff should really reconsider their behavior. And oh, by the way, if it's true that a reporter had to tell a bank investigator what to do to determine a CPP, they probably shouldn't be in the position that they're in anyway. So whoever you are, you, you didn't help yourself or anyone else. You didn't do anyone any favors, other than the reporter, of course, but you didn't do anyone any favors by making those calls. You should stop. Moving on to the Deloitte breach, Wired.com reported that the breach of one of the biggest consulting firms in the world, considered one of the big four, may be much more critical than the firm originally claimed. And now, this goes back to my previous statements about what companies should say and when they should say it about their systems being compromised. So a little bit about Deloitte. Everyone knows who they are. They offer accounting, tax work, they do audits, uh, they do all kinds of consulting. They made $37 billion in revenue last year. They're huge. They're a monster. So the contents of its internal communications could be potentially extremely valuable to a lot of different types of people. The firm works with governments and top players in numerous industries, and the breach may have exposed IP addresses, health data, usernames, passwords, and other sensitive file attachments in addition to the email themselves. So hackers allegedly infiltrated a sensitive internal email service of the prominent accounting firm and potentially exposed a large range of data about a whole bunch of customers that the company has. It was first reported by The Guardian and that the breach likely occurred in October or November of 2016, uh, but wasn't discovered by Deloitte until March, which is about 150 days or so, give or take a few, whatever. We'll talk about this some more, because I know that this is something that is, is reported on the news media 
and it is, in, in my opinion, very little understood about what goes into these types of investigations to determine exactly what happened. So Deloitte notified six clients that their data had been impacted by the breach, but the company has continued to investigate, and a source with knowledge of the inquiry told Krebs on security that the damage may be far more extensive than Deloitte has previously indicated. So attackers gained access to an administrator account of the email service, which is hosted in Microsoft's Azure Cloud, granting extensive control and access to data. So the account apparently was not protected by two-factor authentication, and it just hinged on a single password. Uh, the Guardian said that a breach at Deloitte involved usernames, passwords, and personal data on the accountant that sees top blue chip clients. So Nick Hopkins, a reporter over at The Guardian, wrote that The Guardian understands Deloitte clients across all of these sectors had material in the company email systems that was breached, which is contrary to what was previously disclosed. The company include household names as well as U.S. government departments, and so far only six of Deloitte's clients out of their enormous client list have been told their information was impacted by the hack. So to continue on, in a statement sent to Krebs on security, Deloitte said that the review of the platform is complete, and importantly, the review enabled us to understand precisely what information was at risk and what the hacker actually did to determine that only very few clients were impacted, and there was no disruption to occur to any of our clients and Deloitte's ability to continue to serve our clients or our customers. However, in a somewhat barn burner of a revelation, information shared by a person with, quote, direct knowledge of the incident said that the company, in fact, does not yet precisely know when the intrusion occurred or for how long the hackers were inside of their systems. Wow. This doesn't jive with the public statements at all. This source, speaking on condition of anonymity, said the team investigating the breach focused their attention on a company office in Nashville known as the Hermitage, where the breach is thought to have begun. The source confirmed the Guardian reporting that current estimates put the intrusion sometime in the fall of 2016 and added that investigators still are not certain that they have completely evicted the intruders from the network as of today. Again, this, this doesn't jive with what, what Deloitte's telling the public. So it indeer, in, indeed, it appears that Deloitte has known something was not right for some time. And according to the source, the company sent out a mandatory password reset email on October 13th, 2016 to all Deloitte employees in the United States. The notice stated that employee passwords and personal identification numbers needed to be changed by October 17th, 2016, and that employees who failed to do so would be unable to access email or other Deloitte applications. The message also included advice on how to pick complex passwords. So the source told Krebs on security they were coming forward with the information about the breach because, and I quote, I think it's unfortunate how we have handled this and swept it under the rug. It wasn't a small amount of emails like reported. They accessed the entire email database and all admin accounts, but we never notified our advisory clients or our cyber intel clients. This same source said forensic investigators identified several gigabytes of data being infiltrated to a server in the United Kingdom. The source further said that hackers had free reign in the network for a very long time and that the company still does not know exactly how much data was taken. So in its statement about the incident, Deloitte said it responded by implementing its comprehensive security protocol and initiating an intensive and thorough review, which included mobilizing a team of cybersecurity and confidentiality experts inside and outside of Deloitte. 
Additionally, the company said it contacted governmental authorities immediately after it became aware of the incident and that it contacted each of the very few clients impacted. Deloitte remains deeply committed to ensuring that its cybersecurity defenses are best in class, to investigating heavily and protecting confidential information, and continuing reviewing and enhancing cybersecurity, the statement concluded. So Deloitte has not yet responded to follow-up requests from other media about this statement from this confidential source, and they haven't commented yet. The Guardian reported that Deloitte notified six clients, but Deloitte has not said publicly yet when it notified those customers. So Deloitte has a significant cybersecurity consulting practice globally. It advises many, many of its clients on how to best secure their systems and sensitive data from hackers. And in 2012, Deloitte was actually ranked number one in the world globally in security consulting-based revenue. We'll be back with more cybersecurity news after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Well, the bad news just kept coming in September. The SEC joined the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission on their investigations and launched their own investigation into the financial stock trades of Equifax executives that apparently occurred after the breach was discovered and before it was announced to the public. But in the ensuing days, however, the New York Times reported that the SEC systems had been hacked as well. 
exposing sensitive information that could have been used for illegal profit. So before we get into the SEC hack, what's even more interesting about this is that the New York Times questioned whether or not the SEC disclosed that information to the public in a timely manner. And, you know, and rightly, rightfully so for, for asking these things. But I, I want to move forward with this narrative because every chief security officer, chief information security officer, if you're the chief privacy officer, the chief compliance officer, and certainly the CEO, should listen very closely to this because the media loves to have a field day with the timeliness of your notifications and what you actually disclose and when you disclose it during a breach. So the Monday morning quarterbacking from people who have no idea what it takes to run a forensic investigation into the compromise of large, sophisticated networks always commences en masse. If you wait until you are breached to start thinking about how you're going to manage this, I have some new news for you. You're already dead in the water. You're toast. The learning point here is to start exercising your narrative now. Who will be the decision makers to review and release statements to the public? What will you say and when? What will be the succession of notification? What external support entities will be engaged in when? Public relation firms, forensic investigation shops, law enforcement, regulators, and even the White House, depending on how severe the breach is and if it's critical infrastructure. Who makes these notifications and, and how will they be communicated? I think there's a lot to think about here. And if you're not exercising this process and this narrative right now, well, instead of being a bad headline, you're going to be a really, really, really bad headline with angry mobs calling for the recall of every dollar you've ever made and the confiscation of all your assets. And in some cases that we've discussed earlier with, with Ms. Khan from Fortune Magazine, your imprisonment. It's ridiculous. The New York Times reported that the breach of the Securities and Exchange Commission's electronic system known as EDGAR which receives 1.7 million corporate and security filings a year, was the, was the system that was compromised. So they made a statement. It was in the late evening in, the, in a week in September. The SEC chairman, Walter Clayton, said the commission learned in the month of August that a digital breach it detected in 2016 may have provided the basis for illicit gain through trading. The Times reported that this information was buried in Clayton's statement, which otherwise appeared to concern the general matter of cybersecurity. So he's making a statement on cybersecurity and then releases the information about his organization's own breach. So he had some prepared testimony for his appearance before the Senate Banking uh, Committee. And he said he didn't learn of the breach until August when the investigation of possible illegal trading was eventually brought to his attention. So the New York Times clamored that an agency that prizes itself on prompt disclosure of accurate information and has pursued enforcement cases against companies that fail to disclose or update information for investors, well, it appeared that the SEC could use a little dose of its own medicine. But the hacking is more than a simple stumble for the SEC, the Times said. It has provided a roadmap for what compromised companies can say in the future, using the SEC's own words, and, who, and raised the question of how the commission would secure hugely valuable information if it succeeds in its goal of collecting even more of it. So in announcing the breach, Mr. Clayton noted that, quote, even the most diligent cybersecurity efforts will not address all cyber risks that enterprises face. So those words are, are certain to be cited back to the SEC by any company 
especially Equifax, when questions are raised about the systems it uses to prevent digital attacks and making timely disclosures to the public when they do occur, the Times duly noted. I think of a lot of the media should take note of this statement as well. Basically, the, the head of the Security Exchange Commission is basically saying that, and announcing publicly, that despite the best efforts of the highly competent cybersecurity professionals in the world, the risks are significant enough that it shouldn't come to anyone's surprise that their organization gets hacked. So the New York Times opines incorrectly, uh, I may add, that Mr. Clayton is right, that cyber attacks are going to happen even with the best defenses in place then the small software flaws that hackers exploited at the SEC and Equifax add fuel to the fire of doubt about how secure anyone's information can really be. So we need to think of new solutions and new ideas on how to secure our data. But the spotlight on the SEC continued as Reuters reported that just a few months before the SEC discovered the initial breach last year, members of the SEC's own internal digital forensics and security team wrote a letter bemoaning the lack of support they received from the agency's Office of Information Technology and SEC leadership. Now this is an interesting point because apparently the memo was shared with Reuters by a congressional staffer. In the memo sent to SEC's Inspector General, the head of SEC's Digital Forensics and Investigations Unit complained that his team was woefully underfunded, undertrained, and forced to work with repurposed equipment and hard drives that had been designated by other branches of the SEC for disposal. The memo to SEC Inspector General Carl Hoker, excuse me if I didn't pronounce that properly, shared with Reuters by a congressional staffer cited quote-unquote serious deficiencies in funding and support. The entire hardware budget for the unit was $100,000 for fiscal year 2017, half a million dollars under the amount requested. Now, I can tell you from experience running one of the most advanced digital forensic outfits in the country over at JPMorgan Chase that $100,000 for that forensic shop is not just woefully inadequate, it's a joke. Like, that, that's a joke. And what are you supposed to do with that? $100,000 budget for an entire year to run a forensic shop for a major U.S. enforcement agency is sending a clear message to anyone listening that the response capability of the SEC is not a priority to anyone. It's just not important. It's just not. Can't be. Normally, complaints to the Inspector General of an agency get significant attention. However, in this case, the complaint was directed to Hoker because he oversaw the unit. The Digital Forensics and Investigation Unit was created by Hoker in 2015, not just for internal security investigations, but so his office could play a role in the SEC's law enforcement role, providing forensic support to SEC criminal investigations. In 2016, report to Congress, Hoker described the role of the unit within the SEC Office of Investigations as the following. This unit, this new unit, enhances the OIG's investigative capability and assists in detecting, identifying, and protecting against threats to the SEC's sensitive information systems. Furthermore, the OIG has added auditors with information technology experience and expertise. These staff will assist the OIG in continuing to perform its important oversight function as the SEC continues to make needed technological improvements to achieve its mission. Makes sense. Sounds good. 
But right now, to everyone, that seems like a bunch of lip service because of what happened and then the budget that they received. And to be fair, Mr. Hooker, too, surely has a budget that he has to operate with. So to be fair to everyone involved, and I, I don't want to stress, I always want to try to do that, one must really know the extent to which this letter was discussed with the right decision makers so that they may be held accountable for their decisions in the future. So too often, I think, insinuations and assumptions are made by the media and the public about accountability without truly knowing all the facts. So one thing I would like to see in the cases of publicly traded companies, and in this case, taxpayer-funded organizations, the requirement that the result of internal inquiries and inquiries from oversight bodies into the target companies be made public so that the right people are held accountable for their decisions and that the, the public is informed. So the memo was pretty direct, and it bemoaned even further that, quote, even though the unit has been in existence for over a year, there is no strategic vision and no clear objective. The memo also cited a lack of communications from the SEC's Office of Information Technology on internal IT security issues. So two months after the August 2016 memo was written, the SEC detected a breach in Edgar and though an application and testing that provided access to live data. And as you could see it, you could predict from the tone and content of the letter, it took almost a year for the SEC to determine the extent of that breach. Now, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the memo became public. I mean, I'm sure once it became known that some illicit trades may have taken place, the wrath of God came down on the head of the digital forensics unit because it took so long to figure this out. And with their job and livelihood being threatened by the very people they probably feel are ultimately responsible for the slow and inept response to begin with, they're going to pull out their get-out-of-jail-free card. Self-preservation. And probably, in their mind, moral and ethical correctness kicks in and goes into full gear. I mean, they have kids and, 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 and families and loved ones and, 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 and people and responsibilities, I'm sure, um, that they need to take care of. So uh, there's no falling on the sword here. <laughs> and perhaps there shouldn't be. So I looked into this a little bit further, and according to NBC News, last year the security risk benchmarking firm Security Scorecard ranked federal, state, and local governments last among 17 major industries and institutions it examined for cybersecurity, highlighting outdated software and slow or inadequate deployment of critical updates. Wow. Government enforcement agencies. Dead friggin' last. I mean, that speaks volumes right there. You know, when I think of this, I think about the cop who pulls you over and gives you a ticket while he has a headlight out. You know what I'm talking about? I'm sure people out there listening know what I'm talking about. I mean, that's among the other 10 traffic violations you just saw them commit moments before having the impudence to pull you over and impose as well on your insurance premiums. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and I was a cop, so don't get me going. I can feel my blood pressure going up already. And finally, the Equifax breach, uh, the mother of all debacles. I didn't spend a lot of time on it today because we're probably going to talk about it some more on some upcoming episodes and get some cybersecurity experts to come on and talk about what happened and, and, and how things went down and, and, how, and what we can learn from it. And so hopefully we'll get, get, get take away some really good insights on that. But cybersecurity experts around the country are just pounding on Equifax. Here's a quote. These are all indicators of a company that had horrible security culture, says Tinfoil Securities' Michael Borohovsky. 
Unfortunately, the only word for it is negligence. When your social media profile is tweeting out a phishing link, that's just bad news bears. So I don't think it's any secret that I agree with Mr. Borohovsky's assessment on that one. Here's another one. Equifax sits on the crown jewels of what we consider personally identifying information, says Jason Glassberg, co-founder of the corporate security and penetration, penetration testing firm Cassava Security. Quote, you'd think a company like that, guarding what they're guarding, would have a heightened sense of awareness, and that clearly was not the case. He goes on to say that there's no question a company like Equifax would be targeted all the time by hackers, and that's hard, but all of this really speaks to poor security practices and a lackadaisical response. My hope is that this really becomes a watershed moment and opens up everyone's eyes, because it's astonishing how ridiculous almost everything Equifax did was. End of quote. Oof. According to Bloomberg, one of the things that was attract, that has attracted the attention of criminal investigators in the Equifax breach is that Equifax CFO John Gamble, president of U.S. Information Solutions Joseph Luron, and president of Workforce Solutions Rodolfo Ploder, dumped nearly $1.8 million in stock just after the company discovered the breach in about one month before it was announced. So Equifax has maintained that the three individuals, the three executives, didn't know about the breach when they sold their stock. Who knows? The Securities and Exchange Commission is also looking into the sales of what executives knew beforehand to see if the move constitutes insider trading. The DOJ investigation will work alongside the SEC and will be headed by the U.S. prosecutors in Atlanta, says Bloomberg sources. This is Adam Bloomberg. Those agencies are joined by the Federal Trade Commission, which is also looking into the breach. Last week, dozens of senators sent letters to the DOJ, SEC, and FTC requesting investigations into potential insider trading. So according to Bloomberg, while the company has claimed that the three officials didn't know about the more recent breach when they sold their stock, it's unclear whether they knew about the March breach. And along with this August stock sale, Equifax CFO John Gamble sold over $1.9 million in stock on May 23rd, a transaction that may now be interest to the DOJ in light of the reports of a second earlier breach. So it seems some of this information could potentially just keep getting worse and worse for Equifax. So some of the things I'm going to cover in some of our episodes coming up is the departure of the CSO and CISO of the firm, as well as, as the CEO of the firm, and the testimony, his testimony in front of Congress last week, and what we can learn from all of this from a cybersecurity perspective. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in. I hope to see you next week. This is Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.